0: Uh, Our scripture reading today uh, is Genesis 6, a few verses, and a few verses from Genesis 12. Our scripture reader is Dan Wanshura. In honor of God's word, please stand.
1: Listen as I read. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These these were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And as the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved Grieved him to his heart, so the Lord said, "I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them." But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and and for, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you." And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, we're in a series uh, called The Story of Stories, and we are tracing the biblical storyline and recognizing that there's one overarching story. But, you know, you look at your Bible and you're like, well, what about, like, there's, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of stories in here. What about all these stories? Well, all of these stories fit together to, to, to uh, reveal to us this grand story that God is, is un- unfolding uh, in, in the world. And, uh, and so we, we are uh, going to hear from uh, sojourners every, every week of this and recognizing that part of the way that God's at work in his grand story is real time. So, yes, all the stories in the Bible, but also real stories sitting right beside you. People that you can uh, see and talk to and ask and, 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 and ask them to pray for you. And, and maybe there's some parts of Scott and Krista's story that, that resonates with you, that, that you, you hear and you say, man, I, I need to talk to Scott and Krista. Like th- th- those, those who have been willing to share their stories are, are more than glad to talk with you. And so this is part of us sharing in this recognition that God is still at work uh, in the world. And so we're, we're walking our way through this story, and today we are going to tackle a really long stretch. Um, and so I want you to see two pivotal moments or two pivotal characters uh, in, in this grand story. One of them is Noah, and one of them is, is Abraham. And, uh, and so we're, we're like going to try to kind at least uh, get through seven chapters. So I would not recommend trying this at home. Um, but it is, it, is, uh, it is important, and uh, it's, it's an invitation for us uh, to see this story and this storyline uh, continue uh, forward. So in Genesis chapter 6, if you'll if you, uh, turn your Bibles there, um, and you know, we had these verses, the first few verses of this chapter read a few minutes ago, and I'm not actually being sarcastic. We're, we're not going to try to tackle uh, the Nephilim, uh, but it, it's, it, the first verses of chapter 6 are, are revealing to us some more details about how things are going on the dirt of the earth. How are things going on this globe? So the, the good world that God created that we learned about in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, it's been infected with sin. Uh, it's been infected with, with, with rebellion. Uh, and and you know, Adam and Eve committed this sin. They, they, when they did, it, 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 it flooded into the world. And then God sits down with them and he tells them the consequences are going to be severe. Genesis chapter 3, they're, 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 you know, they're going to be worse than you could have imagined. Uh, it, this, this sin, this rebellion that is now flooded into the world, it's going to little by little impact everything. It's going it's to deteriorate. Uh, there's a sense in which everything is going to be bent. It's broken. It's, it's, it's vandalized. It's harmed. Uh, the, the word separation, the word death means separation. And when God tells them the consequences, he, he, he is honest enough with them to tell them that this is going to bring death that sin brings death, which means sin brings separation between man and God, between man and man, between man and himself, his own physical life, his own human body, just division and separation and brokenness everywhere. But while God's talking about all that, he slips a promise in there. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but some scholars refer to this as the first gospel. It's, it's a whisper, but it is a promise, It's the promise that the offspring of Eve would crush Satan. Well, what happens in chapter 4? Adam and Eve have, have offspring. They have two kids. Cain and Abel are their names. But here they have their offspring. The promise was Eve's offspring will crush Satan. What happens? Cain gets furious. He murders Abel. So Abel's out of the picture. And then Cain, because of his wickedness, Cain is cursed and he's sent out as a, as a wanderer forever, and he's out. So much for Eve's offspring. Satan crushed them instead of them crushing Satan. Well, not, not so fast. Later in chapter four, there's an incredible phrase, whether you know it or not, and it says that Eve bore another son. Eve had another son, another offspring. And that offspring is part of God keeping his promise. That while Satan may have thought, oh, yeah, your offspring's going to crush me, he crushed them first. God gave Adam and Eve another son. God is preserving the offspring, He's preserving the lineage. But boy, the infection of sin, it just keeps coming. It just keeps getting put on display the corruption of the world. So if you were to sit and read Genesis chapter five, and then even the verses that we just heard a moment ago into chapter six, it's not good. It's the situation on earth is not good. Cain was not just a bad apple who murdered his brother, and then it's like okay, well that like you know now then we you know Cain's out of the picture, so we're back to no, it, it, he's not a bad apple. the The, the world is 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 uh, turning corrupt. The world's falling apart. And by chapter 6, it's a, it's a train wreck. I mean, chapter, chapter 6, verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That, that, that's, God looks down, and it's this, this invitation to see from God's perspective. And he looks down at the earth, and his conclusion is, this, this is a train wreck. The wickedness of man fills the earth. It's, it's a mess. And then God does something that might be disruptive. We find out in the next verses that, that God looks at this situation and his heart is heavy. He actually says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. Whew! Th- th- those are those are some tough verses. The idea that God's sorry that He made man, the idea that God grieved over this creation. Just a couple chapters ago, God looked at all of this and He said, "It's all good. It's it's all so good." And now He looks at it and says, "No. It, wickedness is everywhere. Every thought of the mind, every thought of the heart, all the intentions—they're they're all messed up. This is this is a mess." He's like, and I'm I'm, I'm 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 sorry. I'm grieved. He, he was sorry, is, 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 is this idea that the Hebrew word to, to say, that the, the Hebrew word for to be sorry can also mean to feel sorrowful. But, but either way, either way, God, God is looking at this. And the wicked effects that God said were going to fill the earth when Adam and Eve did what they did and sin broke in, God said this is what's going to happen. And here we are in chapter 6, and boy, uh, you know, it has filled the earth. God looked at his creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and he said, be fruitful and fill the earth. You know, human beings, be fruitful, ha- have children and spread across the globe. Fish, you know, multiply and fill the ocean. Birds, multiply and fill the air. God was like, I'm all about filling this globe. But by chapter 6, look at what it's filled with. It's filled with, with wickedness. It's filled with brokenness. And so God has this this attitude towards the the earth, which is like, this is is a mess. God feels sorrow towards the creation that he once called so good. And God says, I'm going to blot it all out. Let's start over. Let's start over. But but there's the eighth verse of chapter six. See, there's a problem with God's plan to blot it all out. And the problem is that if God does that, if God blots out everybody, then this promise that we're so captivated by in Genesis chapter 3, this promise that the seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve, will crush Satan, if God blots out everybody, that includes the offspring of Eve. That includes the lineage of Eve. And if God blots out everybody, then God will have failed to keep his promise. So God takes action. He takes action again. Just like we saw in chapter 4. Cain and Abel are ruled out. What does God do? Eve bore another son, and the lineage, the seed is preserved. Well, here he takes action again to keep his promise, and he solves two problems. He, he, he has a plan, and, and the plan is he, he rescues Noah in chapter 8, it says that he looked at Noah and he, he, had, had, he had compassion on Noah. His, his heart was full towards Noah. So he, he rescues Noah. He preserves the line of Eve. The promise of the offspring that will crush Satan, boy, it's still alive. He's, he's going to preserve Noah. But the Lord also sends a flood to restart the situation on the earth. So it's that bad. Is that bad to where God goes goes to work to keep his promise. But the situation on earth is so bad that he says we do need a a restart. So God sends a flood. Now if you see the the passage for this second point, it's it's long. Chapter 6 all the way into chapter 8. And and what we find here is that God gives Noah some instructions and tells him to, to build a boat. And uh, Noah just uh, obeys God and uh, follows the blueprint and builds a boat, but he builds it on dry ground. Uh, And then God sends rain and the rain comes and the rain fills the earth. And eventually, obviously, the rain lifts the boat up. And as the world is purged, the ark uh, is a place of of safety where God preserves Noah uh, and his his family. It's almost like a baptism, you know? If you went to back to Genesis chapter 1, it says that, that God had the waters recede and the land come up. It's like, that, like, it's like almost like bringing the land up out of the water. That's how God started creation. And so here in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, God fills the earth with water again. And then he, he has the waters recede and he brings the land back out. And it's like this, this, this renewal, this washing, this, this reset. Now, my guess is that just like the Nephilim, you want a lot more details about the boat. You want a lot more details. How did all these animals fit on there? What, what did they do with the animal poop? What did, how did they feed the animals? Like you, 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 you want all kinds of details about the boat. I, I, I get it. You want a lot of details about the flood. Explain this water, explain the, you know, the, the, whole, the whole earth being covered. Ex- explain all that. Like, I, I understand why, why you would have a lot of questions. But this sermon isn't about that. But I want to remind you of something that we've talked about here many times. Biblical narrative is incredibly selective. When you read biblical narrative, which that's what Genesis is, it it almost never tells us all the details that we think we want. I mean, I'll give you some examples, some other things that we avoided in the last few weeks. You got Adam and Eve. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, so there's this young guy, Cain, he's sent out, and when God sends him out, you know what Cain says? This is terrible. Everybody's going to want to kill me. Who? Who who are those people? Next thing you read, Cain Cain gets married. Cain has a child. Uh, Who who did Cain marry? Anyway, Cain goes and sets up a city. Who are the inhabitants of the city? who's it populated by i mean if you take the text seriously and you take the text literally which is what i do what our church does what a lot of people do there are a number of possibilities for the answers to these questions but the the author of genesis isn't spending time giving you the answers to those questions what 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 i think would be helpful is for us to, to to recognize that good you know if you're a good reader of biblical narrative Recognize that it is cr- incredibly selective. It, it is not giving you every single detail that you think you want. If you went to the New Testament, maybe you say, "Well, this is just a Genesis problem." No, no, it's not. If you go to the New Testament and you you know there's four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you sit and you read those four Gospels and you were to try to align the various accounts, because several of the Gospels tell the same account. So Mark records the same account that Luke records, for for example. And if you're reading Mark's account of, of a certain situation, and then you go read Luke's account of that situation, it is very common that Luke gives you a lot more detail than Mark does. Mark's the shortest gospel. Mark is a you know he's he's got uh, he's got goals. You know Mark is like Mark's moving through the narrative fast. Mark is cutting to the point. Mark is not giving you a ton of details. You know, some, some scholars have referred to Mark as like an, an action movie. It's like on to the next scene, on to the next scene. So you read Mark, then you go read Luke, and, and you, you look at it and you're like, well, why didn't Mark tell me about that? You know, why didn't Mark tell me that there was an angel there? Or why didn't Mark tell me that there was another person there? Why didn't Mark give that detail? It happens all over. The, the, the point is this the reason that the biblical writer doesn't tell you all the kinds of information that you think you need is that it does not help him get his point across there's something that the author is trying to communicate to us under the inspiration of the Spirit of God as as these authors wrote there's a point that they are trying to communicate and the point of Genesis these texts it is to teach us some things it's just the list that it wants to teach us isn't always your list and so there's a lot of details that just are not here. A lot of specifics that we don't get. If it doesn't tell us the things we want to know about, it's because it's not necessary in order to understand the point. To understand what Genesis and the author of Genesis and the Spirit of God was after. What, what is God telling us in this narrative? If the answer's not in there, then guess what? It might be interesting. It might be worth your time but it's not necessary for the point of the biblical author. So you just have to be a little bit willing to recognize that the point of reading texts in the Bible is to learn what the Lord wants you to learn, to to see what the Lord wants you to see. He is the ultimate author of the Bible, and he wants to tell us things. So we go to the pages of the Bible and we receive from him. And what he's telling us here. In regard to this flood, I mean, there's a lot to consider for sure. But he is telling us that he wants to restart the world with this guy, with Noah. He, he, he picked out Noah. He had Noah build a flood. Mo- Noah preached. It seems like there was an invitation for other people to respond. But in the end, it's Noah and his family. And God restarts the world with Noah and his family. He wipes the world clean. So the world's a mess. God wipes it clean. And then we've got Noah. And the ark uh, lands on dry ground. Eventually they come out of the ark and we get the restart of the world. We find this at the end of chapter 8 into chapter 9. Clean slate, you know? Got rid of all those bad people. Got, got, you know, washed, washed the earth of all, all, the, all the wickedness. You remember, if, if you remember at the end of the creation account, at the end of God's creative work, the, the, the Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God rested. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his creative work. And I've mentioned this a couple times through the series now, but there are two Hebrew words that, that communicate the idea of rest. What one, idea is the, one word gives us the idea of literally stopping, of literally ceasing from what you're doing, a, like a hard stop. That's one Hebrew word for rest. But the other Hebrew word for rest gives you the idea of settling in, dwelling. being being present. It it gives you more the idea of like resting on, coming coming to a a, a stop in the sense of like settling in, like almost like finding home. And that Hebrew word is the Hebrew word nuach. I I mentioned that one scholar, Tim Mackey, suggests that the drama of the biblical story is actually when God rests at the beginning of chapter 2 in Genesis, the question then becomes is God going to nuach, is God going to rest with his people? Are they going to do it together? So so God's rested, are his people going to rest with him? God God has settled in, will his people settle in with him? And we quickly find out that the answer is no, that that, that, that human beings rebelled against God and their dwelling was lost and there was separation between God and man. Well, things got crazy in chapters three through eight. And guess who's left? Noah's left. That's who we got. Now, any any guesses on what Noah's name in Hebrew is? It's actually Nuach. It's that Hebrew word for rest. It's it's associated with that very idea. Dwell. This sense of relief, this sense of comfort, this sense of settling in. And in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, we find out that his dad named him that on purpose. His dad had some level of, of foresight and named his son rest. He, he saw something happening in Noah's life. And it's like th- this is gonna be this is gonna be part of his story, is this this dwelling, this settling in, this relief, this rest. You know, so Noah, we got him here. Start, restart. Fresh earth, fresh world. Noah's name is rest. His name is settle in. His name is relief, comfort. Noah's the good guy, right? I mean, this is a clean start, and we got a good guy for it. Wiped out all the bad ones. He's just a, you know, a crazy boatmaker that's now become a farmer, and this is going to be a good story. Well, unfortunately, no. Now, remember, the Bible does not give us every detail, but, but look at the first detail we do get on Noah in this new start. They get off the ark. God makes a covenant with Noah. He tells Noah that he's going to put a rainbow in the sky and that every time that mankind sees a rainbow in the sky, it's meant to be a reminder that God is never going to destroy the earth by water again. He's never going to do that. He did that in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. He's not going to do it again. And every time we see a rainbow in the sky, we are invited to remember again God's promise to Noah. It's true for us. I saw a rainbow the other day. When you see a rainbow, it, it should remind us of this beautiful promise of God. It's a sign. It's a reminder that God's going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his covenant. All so good. Off to a good restart. There's have some ceremonies here, some promises, and you know, we know how God's doing. I mean, God's keeping his promises. So this is a good sign. But then what? After the ceremony, what's the very first detail that we get about Noah? He fails. Noah gets plastered. Noah gets so drunk that he doesn't even remember anything. Now, vineyards take some time to grow. So some stuff happened. I mean, you know, if, 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 if the water receded, it took some time for vineyards to grow. So this isn't, this isn't the first detail of the actual restart, but it's the first detail that they give us. It's the first detail that Genesis gives us. And it puts us in this position of recognizing that, what? I thought this restart was going to be good. God just made another promise. He's not going to destroy the earth again. We just wiped out all the bad stuff and we got just the good guy left. I thought this was going to be the restart that we were waiting for. I thought this was going to be a good story. Here's what, I, here, here's what hits me when I, when I see this sequence with Noah. The Bible teaches that Satan is real and that temptation is real and that what the, the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden is part of the story of my life, it's part of the story of your life, that, that Satan is real and temptation is real and that is all so true. But it also tells us, the Bible does, that my own heart is a danger zone. In other words, I don't need any help to figure out how to rebel against God. I can come up with all kinds of ways to do it just by myself. Now, I've said before, like, you, you could put me on an island with, with no, no, no materials, no people, no technology, no, no, no books or magazines, no, nothing. Put me on an island all by myself, and I'll, we can, I can figure it out. I can figure out how to rebel against God. My, 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 my heart knows how to do it. Because sin that came into the world has actually so deformed us that our natural bent now is away from God. And so here is Noah. We get no indications that Noah was tempted, we get no indications that this was Satan wooing him away. It just appears that Noah wants to do what Noah wants to do. This is the clean start, and Noah still fails. Noah's drunkenness is a problem. Scholars talk about the fact that it's it's another one of those examples of the bluntness of the account is revealing the significance of it. It's just point blank that, that, that Noah's drunkenness is a problem. And it is a perfect example of abusing God's good gifts. Such a good example of abusing God's gift. Like this is the distortion of sin. This is what sin does. It causes us to take the good things that God has populated this earth with to take their good, good gifts, and then to abuse them. So so Noah did it with alcohol. And it's wicked in God's eyes. Not not alcohol itself. The abuse of alcohol. The drunkenness. We do it with work. Work is part of God's good design. But what do we do? We either overwork or avoid work. We take his good gifts and and we, we abuse it. Sex is one of God's good gifts. Food is one of God's good, good gifts. People and relationships are some of God's good gifts. I, I don't know about your story, but I can look at my story and see how in all of those categories, I have taken God's good gifts and abused them. I've, I've, I've twisted it and distorted it. And instead of using it in the way that God designed, I allow these things to be used in distorted ways. It's what, it's what sin does in us. Our culture has all kinds of challenges. Some, some in this room, some, alcohol is a challenge. It's, 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 it's got you in a headlock. And, and here's an example of, of Noah falling into that trap. Instead of being able to receive it as a good gift, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that the Bible talks positively about alcohol and wine more oftenly than it talks negatively about wine. So that wine is not the problem. It's the abuse of the wine that's the problem sex is not the problem in our current cultural moment it's the abuse of sex it's sex outside of heterosexual marriage that's the problem and as we look at god's good gifts god's inviting us to say what if you use these gifts the way i designed them if you do that you'll prosper if you do that you'll find how beautiful they are but we like noah take god's good gifts and distort them can i call you to turn from that Can I call you to to turn from taking God's good gifts and and abusing them? Instead, ask God, what have you designed this for? How is this supposed to work? And then submit yourself to his good design and learn how to enjoy these incredible good gifts. Well, kind of back to the Noah narrative here. Do you feel defeated? (laughs) You know, Cain and Abel didn't work out, but man, this guy, Noah, it's like God picked him. He wasn't just Eve's child, like, well, he got to work with them. No, God picked Noah, and it still falls apart, and it gets worse after Noah. By chapter 11, the people of the earth are working together, which you could say, well, that's a good, well, they're working together in rebellion against God. There's an account at the beginning of chapter 11 called the Tower of Babel, and God sees it and says, no, no. You're working together, which that's a good thing, but you're working together for the wrong end. It's to make your own name. It's to make yourselves great. And God comes down and puts a stop to it. The world just keeps deteriorating even after Noah. This this restart, this fresh start. Man, do you feel defeated? You know, part of what I think God wants us to feel as you come to Genesis chapter 11 is, can anybody fix this? You know, God said it's going to come through the offspring of Eve, but can, can anybody do it? Cain and Abel couldn't do it. Noah couldn't do it. Nobody after him's been able to figure anything out. When we work together, we work together to the wrong ends. Can anybody fix this? I think it's the longing that God wants to start to cultivate in our hearts as we're reading through the Bible. Well, let's finish with this The world reoriented. In chapter 12, we find out about a guy named Abram. Later on, his name is changed to Abraham, and you might be more familiar with that name. But Abram, in chapter 12, is singled out. He's singled out. This, this situation happens with the Tower of Babel. It's a, it's a mess. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we find God coming along and tapping the shoulder of a guy named Abram. Uh, this time, you know, God, God reveals a little bit more details. Uh, what he, he, he's going to work through a specific family. Not, not just one guy, but, but through a family. That, that God is going to treat the, the family of Abram or the family of Abraham in a unique way. And he's going to bless, it tells us in verse 4, he's going to bless all the nations. So he's picking out Abraham's family and what we'll find out down the road is that his family becomes a nation but God actually wants to take this nation that we come to know as the name Israel. And through that nation, God wants to bless the entire world. In verse four, it says it crystal clear. It's, it, it, it says, uh, so Abraham, or, or verse three, I'm sorry. I will bless those who bless you and him who desires you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, not just your family. Your family is gonna be the source by which I bless them all. So the line the seed, the offspring of Eve, it's going to be preserved, but it's going to bless the whole world. And that is pointing forward to the one who blesses the whole world. His name is Jesus Christ. He, he knows all these details, Abraham. Abraham. God, God tells him crystal clear in the, verse, the first three verses. God tells him all these details. And he says, you know, verse 1, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house. So he tells him all these details, says I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your offspring, and then I'm going through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Tells, tells Abram all those, those details. What, what, what's, what's interesting, is he knows all those details, but it does not mean that his heart believes it. God told him all that stuff, but does that mean that Abram believed it? You know, Chapter 12, verse 4, shows us that Abraham believes it. And in in verse 4, it says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. God says, go. Does Abram believe him? God says, go, I'm going to bless you. Does Abram believe him? Well, verse 4 says, Abram moved his feet. Abram believed God. Abram follows God and leaves his home, leaves his father. Now, You're reading this right. God says to Abram, go where? Leave everything. Okay, where where are we going? I'll tell you on the way. God, where where are we headed? I'll I'll leave everything. I'll tell you on the way. Don't don't worry about the destination. (laughs) Step out and follow me. Now look, here's one of the complicating things. In our moment, every story, every movie just about, has this this uh, uh, this this adventurous storyline where somebody breaks away from their biological family or their small town? If you've ever watched a Hallmark movie, right? They they, they get out of that small town and they set sail and they're gonna make something of themselves and they're gonna go to the big city and they they don't they don't want to you know run an Airbnb back in Vermont like they want to be in Boston, you know, like this this adventure. That's super common. That is super familiar to us. But listen, here's what Bible scholars say. Nobody did that at this point in the world. Nobody did this. The world was so dangerous. The world was so undeveloped. Nobody did this. Nobody left their father and their city and just went off on their own. Nobody did it. So when Abram follows God here, this is no small thing. Following God usually costs something. But the results, boy, it is greater than you could imagine. There's a very real sense in in which following God, it's a call to like selfless action, to, to sacrifice and service. But it is not all woe is me. It is not all of this, what woe is me, I labor on. You know, there used to be a song, a hymn that was the title of the hymn was So Send I You. And the the part of the, the, the song was So Send I You to labor unrewarded. And it just got worse from there. And it's just like, it's this super sad, depressing song where it's like, man, I guess I'll follow Jesus, but it's so terrible. Look, following God does cost something. This was incredibly risky for Abraham to step out, but it is not all woe is me. God says to him, I've got blessing waiting for you. If you'll walk in my way, if you'll trust me, he didn't even tell him where. He just said, if you'll trust me, the blessings are going to blow you away. You won't even believe it. But you know, this dynamic in, in walking with God, listen, I've I've experienced this in my own life. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. You often have to dare great things in order to see God move in great ways. You you, you often have to. You you often have to to actually say, like, you want me to leave my dad? You want me to leave my hometown and do what? I've never heard of anyone doing this. I mean, could you imagine what's going on in Abram's head? I've never heard of anyone doing this. Maybe in a group but not by yourself. And yet that's what God called him to. You know, as a church, I think about our budget. I think about our initiatives. You know, and, and when I look in the rearview mirror just this week writing this sermon, you know, it seems to me like we are always in danger as, as, and maybe it's my, my own fault, but we, we are always in danger of aiming for just the tip of what we think we can accomplish. In, in other words, we shoot for what we think our best effort could be. Kind of like, what would be the maximal effort that Sojourn Church could put out there? All right, that's what we think we could do? All right, let's pray. Let's pray that God would would help us achieve our potential. That God would help us to, to do all that we could do. You know, what that means is that we're not relying on God at all. That means that we're running a math problem. That means that we're just sitting out here and saying, uh, you know, in our region, this is the average household income and this is what, uh, you know, and then the average Christian actually gives 3% of their income. So, uh, okay, th- this is probably what sojourn could give as a congregation. Or, you know, th- th- this would be pretty disruptive if we tried to do this initiative or if we tried to launch something different than what we've done in the past or we tried to change our, our strategy. Like, it is so common that we look and say, what is it that we can accomplish? Th- that's not relying on God it's not walking in faith, that's walking in our own power and asking God to help us fulfill our our potential. God, God sure seems to call his people to a lot more than that. I mean, right here, you know what Abram means? Abram means father. Do you know what Abraham means? Father of nations. Abraham had no children and could not have children. His name was father and he couldn't have kids. God says, okay, I got, I, I, I'm, I got some news for you. I'm going to change your name. You know, could you see Abraham? Be, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Here's what we're going to go with. <laughs> father of many, many nations, right? So, so it's like, not, it didn't reduce it. It amplified it. That's what God does with Abraham. Reaches further. A childless man would be the father of many nations that are going to bless the whole world. You know, maybe our faith is too small. Maybe our faith is too weak. C.S. Lewis has this little analogy and he says, you know, we, we, we don't realize this, but this is his word picture, that we are actually sitting on the beach making mud pies and thinking that these mud pies are so great when what God is offering us is a holiday on the sea. He says, you know, the problem is not that our desires are too strong. It's that our desires are too weak. It's, we, we don't We don't ask God enough. We, we don't follow God enough. We don't trust him to, 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 uh, to fulfill enough. And boy, as Abraham steps out, you know, the, the story of the Bible unfolds and God keeps his promises to Abraham. And eventually we run into this, this, this God-man in the line of Abraham named Christ. And through the person and work of Christ, God blesses the whole world. So you see the pattern that we're running into in Genesis? God is so merciful. Time and time again, he is so merciful. The the story of Abraham again tells us that God's plan is probably going to unfold a little slower than we would like, but boy, he is going to do it. Don't buy the idea that God is ruthless or that God is impatient. No, it's it's more like this. We are children and God has told us, like, stop playing in the street. Like, that doesn't work. Don't, Don't play in the street but rules don't work so God puts up fences fences don't work I mean what's next I mean God could chain us in the basement to keep us from playing in the street but listen that's not a relationship that's not a relationship that's not a, how a father ever should treat his children God actually gives us agency he gives us a level of decision-making he gives us a level of of, of will and and freedom And what we see unfolding on the pages of the Bible is we are often a mess. But God does not quit. And he will do anything to win us back. And that is the message of the gospel. That this promise where he says to Abraham, through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. That blessing is in the person of Jesus Christ where through the, the line of Eve, through the line of Abraham, all the way to Jesus, who comes to this earth and lives the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we deserve to die so that through him we could be reunited to the God who made us. So this whole world could actually be made right. God keeps that promise and he invites you into it. Now look, you could know all those details. Remember I said a minute ago, Abram knew all the details. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. He knew all the details, but did his heart believe it? Well, verse 4 says he did. You you could know all the details about the gospel. You could know that there was a holy God who made a perfect world. You could know that sin came and distorted it and broke it and caused separation and death. You could know that Christ is the one and only hope for man to be reunited to God. You could know that the earth is going to be remade and renewed and all things made new. You you could get that entire quiz right, but that does not mean that your heart believes it. Does your heart believe it? Well, the Bible invites you to respond if you do. Paul in the New Testament says that with your heart you believe, but with your mouth you confess. It's like you can know the details, but but you, you, you take a step of faith. And you actually bail on your agenda. You actually give up on your self-salvation project. And you trust Jesus to save you. You wave the white flag. And instead of trying to save yourself with all of your good deeds or doing it on your own, you trust Jesus to save you. So as we come to this table and we break the bread and drink the cup, this is the invitation. The invitation is, in what ways do you need to trust Christ? Maybe it's, it's along the lines of Noah where there's some aspect of God's good gifts that you're abusing and that you're living in a way that's contrary to God's design. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's sexual. May, maybe it's in regard to your work ba- work-life balance. In what ways do you need to trust Christ to use his gifts as he's designed? Maybe it's more in the category of Abraham. You got a lot of information, but if you responded to that information, does your heart actually believe it? So as the the bread and the cup are served, man, feel free to come when you are ready. But there are a couple prayers in the bulletin that we offer to you just as a way to start the conversation between you and God. And we invite you to take the steps that you need to take to have your heart be made new by the person and work of Jesus. If our service will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this big, long text and for these two characters, Noah and Abraham. And God, there's so much to celebrate in their lives. There's a recognition that even in your good gifts, even in your miraculous works, there is still evidence that the the world is is not right, that our hearts are still bent in in wrong directions, and we are in desperate need of you to come restore them. God, I pray right now for all the individual stories in each and every chair in this room, whatever it is, what, whatever aspects of their life that aren't, aren't aligned with you, whatever aspects of, of their heart that they haven't quite been willing to, 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 to wrestle with before you, I pray that right now is the time that, that they would take all the information but actually do, do something with it, respond to it, and recognize that this is the invitation that you put on the table for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.